Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. This is an example of how it's like the body understands mutual well-being and that, you know, if there's, if one, if there's not, there's no such thing as domination. It's not like the heart is like sitting above the breathing diaphragm and being like, I'm on top of you. I dominate you. <laughs> it's like, this is, a, these are relationships and the entire body is built on relationships and not relationships that are like on transaction. It's not like, you know, the lungs aren't just like, you owe me an inhale. <laughs> the, like these, this sort of like anthropomorphism of, of the body can be a little bit ridiculous, but it can also show how ridiculous these imagined concepts like, um, like capitalism are because, you know, we can forget that capitalism was an idea and that, you know, it was imagined and now we're living it, but it was, all, it, it started in someone's mind. And so, these con these 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 ideas become really ridiculous when we think of it just like you know a part of the body being just like you owe me, <laughs> and now I'm going to go in there and like I'm going to charge you interest or something like that. That's not how the body works. The body works focused on mutual support and well being. What the whole needs, the the body works to create. And then when something goes awry, you know, say something like cancer, that's the body doing its best to try and. And to try and come back to wellness, it doesn't mean that we're not going to get it wrong sometimes because clearly things go wrong, but it's never about like, you know, I'm out to get you right versus. So that is a way that I feel like when we get into the body, we can remember that mutual support and well-being is actually our default. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Abigail, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually learned about your story because you're one of our listeners. You wrote in and you told me a little bit about the work that you do. Uh, and I am incredibly fascinated by the connection between mind and body. I was just listening to Oprah talk to Deepak Chopra about this. So uh, I think it was really sort of a fitting conversation to have. But as you know, I don't want to start by talking about that. I want to start by asking <laughs> you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents and how did that influence and shape who you've become and what you're doing with your life? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, so I was actually, uh, raised by a single mom, so it's just going to be the one parent, um, that, and so, and of course, you know, there's just like, I think anyone who's raised by a single mom knows in a way that I think everyone can, can, uh, assume the tenacity that a single mom has, but, um, I think children of single mothers really know that at like a visceral level. 
Um, and that's of course not to, um, to brush aside the tenacity that's involved in parenting in any configuration of parents. But my mom was just a really, just really modeled tenacity, <laughs> uh, my entire life. And just the, the, um, the, what the really just like what can happen when you refuse to give up, um, even when there's, you know, just like incredible odds stacked against you. And so I'm just, you know, I, I lean into that a lot in, in, you know, my professional, my personal life is just, you know, really visceral memories of, of her just sticking with it, whether that was, you know, staying on the phone with, with, you know, credit card auditor, credit card company, or IRS auditors, or, just whatever it was that she had to do, just how she just wouldn't stop doing it. And I'm just really grateful that I got that model. Yeah. Other than credit card orders, are there any moments <laughs> in particular that you remember as being really formative that forced you to really get on board with this idea of tenacity? Ooh, well, we had a farm when I was a kid. Um, we, I raised sheep and chickens and there was, um, a year where we had goats, although, and then a year where we had pigs, but both those, the, both those animals are like escape artists. So those didn't, we had to choose to not keep them. But, you know, again, that's like, that's, um, another, uh, another uh, example of tenacity. And so I just have like these really, <laughs> she will be so mad if she ever hears me saying this, but <laughs> there was this one time we were getting ready. I made money in the summers by going to local country fairs and showing the sheep and then you could get, you get money. And that was actually like a, a way that we supported the family. And so you had to clean the sheep beforehand. There's this like, I don't know if anyone's ever been to a country fair, you've seen it. There's like these little stands that the sheep come go on to. And, you know, over the course of, of a few weeks, they, they really learn how to be on there. But I had this one, um, who was new to it. And so he, um, he kind of jumped, turned off of the standing and and brought it down onto me. I was probably like nine and, um, and onto himself. And so it was just too much weight for me to push off. And my mom ran down. You said that it's okay if I swear, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was just saying as she was running, just like, fuck shit, fuck shit, fuck shit, fuck shit. But then like, you know, just like swooped in and pulled the, pulled everything back, you know, put every, put everyone to rights and made sure that everyone was calm, me and the sheep. And I don't know, maybe it was just like the kind of intensity of having this, ha- like, you know, having something that I couldn't deal with myself, but then also having the like superhero moment of my mom sweeping in. And then also as a kid, just being like, whoa, she's saying these words that I'm not supposed to say. All of it was <laughs> a formative moment. <laughs> but like I said, if she listens to this interview, she's going to be like, why is that the story? <laughs> uh- <laughs> What has been the impact on your life of not having a father figure in it? Oh, oh, you're going, you're going in deep really quick. Um, So, you know, um, the impact, I mean, I'm not quite willing to say that I haven't had father figures because, you know, this is another thing that I think children of single moms understand is that there really is like, you know, there, we talk about kind of, uh, destruct like deconstructing the binary roles um within parenting and single moms really have to do that so you know i had a father figure she, my father figure was also my mother you know and um 
And then I also had, um, you know, growing up in a rural area and being involved in farming, which it does have, you know, quite a lot of, of men involved. You know, I also had all of these, you know, these really sweet farm, like farmer father figures that, you know, would just always be there to answer questions, to make sure that everything was all right. Neighbors and, um, and um, the vet and, you know, just like growing, I think that's something about growing up in a small town, which is really nice. You know, there's definitely a loss that happens from not having, from not having had a father in my life. And at the same time, like that's my whole life. I don't know. I don't know the difference. So I can't really say like, oh yeah, well it would have been like this because, you know, the way that fathers get portrayed on TV is not is not the real way. And, you know, even anytime looking in on a relationship that a father and a daughter have, that's not, that's always just looking in. So, um, you know, that's, it's hard to say there's no control group where I can say like, Oh, this is how it would have been if I had a father growing up, you know, but yeah. Did you ever, uh, want to go look for him or ask your mom about him or have any curiosity about it? Well, that's the funny thing. So, um, I will only ever find out who my father was if I, if he takes a DNA test from those like DNA testing, um, uh, things, uh, the Uh, man who was married to my mom and I thought I grew up thinking was my father until he left the family. He actually is not my biological father. And we found out out, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a long story, but I guess you like those kinds of answers. So due to the lack of fertility awareness understanding, um, my mom and her husband were trying to conceive, were having difficulty and used a sperm donor. The doctor uh, mistakenly thought that that procedure didn't take and told her that it didn't take and then um, asked her to come back the next month to try again. When she came back the next month, the doctor did a pregnancy test and was like, oh, congratulations, you are pregnant, but it must be from your husband because we know that it didn't work the first time. Really, that was just a misunderstanding of how a woman's body re- responds in the first in the first few hours or days of pregnancy. And so I was raised thinking that, the, the, um, that my mom's ex-husband uh, was my father, but he left the family when I was really young. But then when I took a DNA test about uh, a year and a half ago, I found out that um, it came back with just a, I came back with uh, Ashkenazi Jew and North African as the, as the paternal side. And that's not at all what I grew up thinking I was. So um, we pieced that together, you know, kind of like this shock of, oh my goodness, like that was a real mistake on the part of the doctors and a real sort of just a real bit of a head spin for, for all of us. So, but there's no record of who the donor would have been because it was put down as a, you know, a a procedure that didn't take. So I've been taking the DNA test, like the popular ones and seeing if maybe, you know, maybe he will take one too. And maybe, you know, yeah, who knows? And until then, um, until then it's just been, it's a recent discovery in my life. You know, most of my life I didn't, I didn't know this. So it's just been a bit of a a bit of a beautiful, but also wild ride. It's a, it's definitely not a normal story. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I wondered like when, when you find out something like that, do you look at certain personality traits in your life or, or things that are odd about you? And you're just like, Oh, wait a minute. I wonder if that's where I get it from. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's like anything that is not my mom, you know, uh-huh. I'm like, whoa, 
well, like, who could this come from? And that's actually, you know, if I get to meet my, my biological father, it's not that I need, you know, it's not that I need a father to raise me. I'm an adult and, you know, I have relationships that support me in that way. It's not like I'm looking for that kind of father relationship. I'm just really fascinated. And I really do hope that we get to do this, he and I, to sit across from someone who's half of my DNA and see like, oh, that's where I get my laugh from. Or like, oh, look at us. We're like doing the same like head movement or something like that. You know, like I don't, I don't have, I'm an only child. So I don't have brothers and sisters to see that. Um, You know, they're uh, like in terms of, you know, family resemblance, I look a lot like my maternal grandmother, like, you know, I look very much like her. So that's always kind of been who I've figured I got my looks from, like my face from. But then I know that that's not, I don't look exactly like her. So I'm always like, oh, where did I, where that's, my mom doesn't have this nose. So yeah, I'm really, really curious, really, really curious. And I hope it comes to pass sometime. (laughs) I want to go back to this idea of tenacity. Uh, I personally, I'm finding my life that the ability to, to tolerate adversity only comes from going through it uh, mm. over and over. And I wonder, is that what you found to be your experience as well? I mean, there's so many layers to that, to that idea that the only way to, to sort of survive adversity is to go through it. I do think that until we go through something that sort of pushes us up against our limits, we don't really know what we're capable of, of going through. Um, and there's a bit of a, um, there's a bit of like the, the martyrdom and the sort of, you know, the, the always, the, the always virtuous and ever suffering, you know, like hero, hero or heroine figure that, um, you know, that, that gets presented, especially from groups that face adversity. Now, um, you know, I grew up white in a white area. So there's like, there's definitely aspects where there's a ton more support. Like my mom and I have, have really gone, gone into sort of unpacking all the ways that even though she was really tenacious, there were so many support set up for her to, to get back onto her feet, right? Like as a white woman in a white area. Um, and so then there's, you know, there's, when we, when I think about tenacity and adversity, um, and just what it takes to go to move through it. I, I want to be really careful that I don't romanticize it. Cause it's, and you know, even in my own life, it's easy. It's like, it's really possible to look back on those moments and to think about how, um, you know, how much I learned and how, you know, and how grateful I am that I learned all that. And it can be, you know, I don't want to forget that there are a lot of um, scars there from, you know, from being afraid that we might lose the house, from not really knowing where the next bit of money was going to come from. And just all of that, that really does, you know, create fear for good reason. Um, And sometimes that comes up. Like sometimes I have to remember, I have to remind myself that a situation that seems frightening is actually less about what's happening in front of me and more about those memories that I have from before I really was able to put clear words to those memories. So in a certain kind of way, yeah, going through adversity creates more tenacity. And in another kind of way, it creates um, this sort of like, you know, knuckles clenching sort of, I've just got to get through it kind of um, uh, mentality or reality. 
And so it's a little bit, it's a little bit of both there, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So walk me through then, uh, <laughs> how you get from this to doing the work that you do and ending up living in a jungle in the middle of Mexico. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, okay. So let's see. So I, um, it's like, where, where in the story should I start? I think I'll just, I'll start like around like high school. Um, so I, as a result of everything that happened in my childhood of which, you know, I just gave a little bit of a taste. Um, I had a really rough adolescence and it was really difficult for me to, for me to trust. And it was really difficult for me to, um, to really, uh, sort of feel held by community. Um, and that led to depression and eating disorders and, um, you know, hospitalizations. And it just, it was a really rough go of it. Um, once I, in all of that, I actually started going to yoga classes. There was a a studio in this town where I grew up and the, um, studio owner would let me put up signs, you know, announcements in exchange for classes. Now I started going to yoga because, um, I figured that was the way to look like these, you know, yoga models on the cover of yoga journal, um, you know, thin and beautiful and happy. And that, you know, I was deep in the midst of a pretty significant eating disorder. And so that was, that seemed like that was the way you did it, right? Like I couldn't possibly be happy if I wasn't thin. And if I was thin, I would be happy. And yoga was the way to get to both of those things. So I went, I started doing yoga when I was, uh, 17 and, um, and I did it kind of like a punishment for a long time. Um, just feeling like this is what I have to do in order to, uh, in order to be okay. And, you know, the cool thing about moving and breathing is that it can actually create some sort of, you know, it does, it does work in a certain kind of way, just moving and breathing. And also, the, the place where I get a little bit, um, just a little bit equal parts annoyed and also sad and also like trepidatious around the talk around the mind-body connection is that it can also cause a l- even more suffering. Because when I was quiet in those yoga classes, when it was time to like focus on the breath and be in my body, I was not saying kind things to myself. And I was not in a place where that was, I w- that was not a soothing or even a safe place to be. And so this idea that, you know, all, just, you know, just breathe and it's okay. That's not actually true. If someone's been through significant trauma, that can actually, the opposite can be true, right? But I was, what kept me there was that I really wanted, you know, thin thighs (laughs) and, um, and, you know, like that, that radiant yoga glow that everyone seemed to have judging from how radio, how yoga was being, um, presented and how it still is presented in like what I call the yoga, you know, in what is the yoga industry. So I ended up, um, I was also at that, around that time getting into, um, getting into activism. Uh, I decided not to, not to finish high school. And the deal with my mom was that I could go to the local, um, community college. And if, as long as I couldn't drop out, but I could go to the community college instead. And at that community college, they had a program called, they had a major in human ecology. So 
you know, and I still to this day, I'm amazed that the things that we were able to do got approved by, by the college. But, you know, one of our labs and one of the courses was we got blindfolded and driven out in the middle of winter, dropped in the woods with just a topographical map and a compass. And if we could find the instructor within the three hours of the lab, then we got, we got an A. Right. Like things like <laughs> things like that were were our courses and then also started learning about, you know, the the really the the nature of how humans have affected the ecology of the earth and what political activism really is. Um, and I started, you know, getting more and more involved in that. That gave me this like outlet of fire and sort of you know, it allowed me to rage about the, the places where I'd, where I was hurt and the trauma that I'd experienced in a way that was acceptable and, you know, like, uh, or not acceptable. Cause you know, like there's, there's different layers of acceptable, but it gave me a story that didn't make me have to go into like the depths of my story. So I started getting more and more involved in activism and, you know, learning more and more. Um, and sort of left the yoga situation a bit more now that I was, now that I had this kind of fiery place and was finding community in a way that I hadn't found, uh, before. Um, my body, however, did get, uh, pretty hurt just by the nature of, of, um, of chemical weapons used by, on, on protesters. When I was at the, the NAFTA protests in Quebec, um, what year was that? That must've been 2000 or I'm going to, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember the year, but, um, George W. Bush was, was in office. So it was in that era. Anyway, they, um, they would make the, they made these towers of different types of chemical gases and then hose them down on the protesters. Um, and, uh, and, you know, people started having spontaneous menstruation. It was, you know, really like I had these crippling, like these, I had these stomach cramps that would send me, like literally take me to the ground for months afterwards. Um, so I, once after that happened, I started to pull a bit back from the, from the, you know, in the streets political activism I was doing and get more involved in environmental, um, environmental activism through the form of, uh, of, uh, agriculture, um, permaculture, organic agriculture, CSAs. Um, I was working on a CSA when nine 11 happened. And I remember, you know, being in the harvest shed, uh, turning on the radio and, and listening to the news that the second tower had just been hit. So that was where I started to, you know, I was at that point I was 18. Um, you know, was still really fired up still really trying to just like find my way through the, you know, the ways that I had just like removed myself from other people. Um, but then also, you know, being around, um, growing things and the farm that I, uh, was an intern on and still love to be a part of whenever I'm in that part of the world is a horse powered farm. So they don't use tractors, they use horses and just being around these, you know, giant Belgian horses and, and following their rhythm rather than the rhythm of tractors or cars or whatever. Um, it really started to shift them some things for me. So I started, um, hitchhiking around and, uh, you know, being just like a total wild child. I'm so sorry, mom, again, if you're listening, <laughs> um, and ended up going to all of these different, 
um, permaculture farms uh, in in different parts of uh, Central America and and in um, the states and in Hawaii. Um, I mean, Hawaii is a state, but it also feels like you know it's worth saying that Hawaii is a, uh, is is a state that should be its own country. Um, and the Hawaiian Liberation Movement is one to check out. So all of that, um, you know, really started to bring me back to myself. Eventually, I decided to go back to New England, where I'm from. Um, and uh, and when I got there, uh, I started going back to some yoga classes because, you know, traveling around permaculture farms, anyone who's been to a permaculture place knows that yoga and permaculture often go together. So I'd started doing it again. and um, And when I got back to Massachusetts through, you know, sweet serendipity, I ended up meeting who has now become my primary somatic teacher, Patty Townsend. She's that she developed a style of yoga called embody yoga, which takes the work of Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen, who developed body mind centering and, uh, sort of overlays it with Iyengar and Ashtanga yoga and classical yoga texts as a way of showing how you know, Western yoga is often focused on the external. And that's what I had been finding, you know, like that's what I was seeking is this is how I get to look good. Right. Um, and the happiness will become as a result of looking good. Uh, and in body yoga, I started to have someone show me how it's really about going into the lived experience of being in a body. And then, and it's not about, you know, good or bad or, you know, happy or sad or any of these sort of binaries, um, it's about just being present with what is and what, and what is, is typically much messier than even just like, you know, a word like happy can give. Um, so, and it's, you know, and it really, it is this style of yoga that goes deep into the physical structures of the body that goes into understanding how the, how anatomy really, it's not just a, you know, it's not just this bag of bones and meat that we walk around in. It's, it's this living, breathing, relational, um, community that creates the body. So that was, um, I started, I did my yoga teacher training, not with the intention of teaching, but more just because I was really, um, just engrossed in this. And then soon after, like two weeks after I finished that teacher training, I was in my very small, a uh, little car and was rear-ended by a very big truck. And, um, the, uh, the impact, um, herniated, uh, two discs in my spine and gave me some other injuries. And it was, um, it was just a long, well, not, you know, not the longest, but it was a significant road to being, uh, comfortable again. Doctors, when they saw me, they were like, well, you know, if you're lucky, you'll be able to walk again. Cause it had, it had messed up the nerves, um, on my left leg. And I'm like, you'll be able to walk again, but probably not without significant pain. And you're going to need to have cortisone shots for the rest of your life. And bear in mind, I was like, I was 26. So I was like, well, gosh, it seems like getting back surgery and cortisone shots is, is an extreme step to take first, you know? Um, so I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll try these other approaches first. And then if, if it needs surgery, then we'll go, we'll go that route. So um, I was, I went back to living with my mom. I basically like laid on the floor for about three months and just went really deep with understand the way that I understood the body up to that point. And then just going as deep as I could just 
into both the feeling and studying, you know, reading anatomy books just over and over and over again to see like, okay, so this is where, this is where the herniation is. Like, this is what's going wrong. This is what's going on in me. Within three months, I was walking again. Within six months, I was, you know, had more integration and range of movement than I did before the accident. So much so that the insurance company was like, oh, you couldn't possibly have been injured, even though the MRI was right there in front of them. They were like, clearly there was a mistake. You were injured or you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have this kind of result. So, you know, which is anyone who's been through insurance, (laughs) the things in the States understands that one. But I was like, well, my leg is worth more to me than the insurance settlement. So, okay, fine. Anyway, that all sent me into, you know, just this, this incredible, now it was like, okay, it's possible to show, to help people learn how to, you know, be out of pain. Like I'd been in a lot of emotional pain and I had my share of injuries up to that point, but I hadn't been in the kind of just deep sort of despair pain of maybe I'm not going to be able to ever be done. Like maybe this is now just what I'm going to live with and I can't really move. And there's just this level of vulnerability. Um, and again, like, you know, that was six months. So, you know, I now work with people who are, you know, I'm working with a client right now who he's paralyzed. And so I've worked with people who have had like, you know, much like, you know, long-term, if not permanent uh, injuries, there's a way that I'll never understand the level of, of tenacity that that includes. And Uh there's, I'm grateful that I understand a touch of what it means to have to sit with the reality that, whoa, this might be the, my new normal. And it's, and it's a normal that really isn't supported. Um, there's a great new book out called care work. Uh, and I'm forgetting the woman's name, so I don't want to miss, I don't want to get it wrong in, in talking, but she, uh, it's talking about creating disability justice. And I was listening to a podcast interview with her recently, and she was saying how Um, you know, one thing to remember is that it's not the disability that's actually so difficult for people is, I mean, pain is difficult, but it's also just the ways that, that within the concept, context, context of modern society, disabilities are, are really made, they make someone's lives kind of isolated, right? Because it's like, people think that having a wheelchair, like the meme that goes around is people think that having a wheelchair is the, um, is the thing that's, you know, that's inaccessible and like the sad thing. A wheelchair is a tool of access. It's the way that the, that buildings are made without ramps or that, you know, that, that different places are inaccessible by wheelchair. That's, that's what makes having a wheelchair a problem. The wheelchair itself is actually a tool that helps someone who doesn't have the ability to walk on their legs move around more, more freely. So getting to understand that, that it's like, oh, like, you know, I can't really, I can't walk from here to there without extreme pain. This is something that I hadn't ever really had to think about before. So I started just, uh, I decided to go back to school for physical therapy school because it really inspired me that there's the, out of all, you know, medical professionals, that, uh, you know, physical therapists and occupational therapists really give their the people they work with tools for, um, you know, it's not like you, you know, like, yes, you're going to go to them and they're going to help you out, but it's also like, you're now going to take these tools with you and you're going to, I, you know, ideally be able to get stronger than you were before. Um, so I was, I started, I went back to school, uh, started studying a lot of science and I'm not 
Uh, that's not, I'm not someone for whom like math and science comes easily. Um, but I, I just, I went through it and I'm grateful that I did because it's really influenced my writing work when writing has always come easily to me. Mm-hmm. I got done with that and decided and I'm feeling like I want to like kind of roll through to get to the, <laughs> to get through it a bit. But, um, I got done with that was going to go into physical therapy school and realized that I actually didn't want to. It was then like a, you know, I went to the mountains for a week by myself and realized that I actually didn't want to go and work from within the system. So drove to Mexico as a way to kind of be like, well, I'm not really sure what to do, but maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll figure it out there. And when I got there, um, took my car to get an oil change and they put in the wrong oil, the wrong oil filter. The car basically became just a pile of parts. And so I got stuck in, in this, in, in a city in Mexico, in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, putting my car back together. And in that, uh, I ended up coming to a little village that's inaccessible by car. So you had to take a boat to get there. And, um, that's where I live now, <laughs> not full year. Um, but, uh, but that's where I've been coming now for months out of every year, um, to be in this beautiful, this beautiful space where, um, where you might hear the writing. I, I may have to check it out. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, it's a really, it's a really rad place. I, I, I recommend it. It's an awesome spot. It's actually, it's an indigenous community. So Mexico has a very few, um, areas where the land rights have never been taken from the indigenous community. And this, this village is one of them. So I, as a, um, as an, as a U.S. citizen can't ever own land here, but even if I were a Mexican citizen, but just not from this community, I couldn't own land here. So what I appreciate about that is that it does mean that there are, it's a, there, there is a, there is, you know, significant numbers of people who are not from this community here and they're here in relationship with the people who are in this community. And the final say comes down to the people who, whose land it is. And which is, I just feel like a really rad, um, example of what it can look like for, you know, like talking about how, you know, putting land back into the hands of the indigenous communities that to whom, you know, who have been the stewards of this land, this is an example of how that can work. And I think that's really, it's really beautiful. And it's why I choose to spend so much time here because it gets, it's, it's living into that future that I really want to see us all be in. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So many questions. I know, um, that was a lot of, that was a long story. <laughs> no, no, no. So I think that, you know, what struck me in particular about your work, uh, like I said, was this idea of, you know, connecting with the mind and the body. And I think, you know, now that I, I thought it through as I was listening to talk to you, I think what, what made it appealing to me is that, you know, when I was, I think in my like early twenties, probably up until I started surfing, I had really bad IBS, like just stomach problems galore. And if you go to a doctor with IBS, they don't know a damn thing. Like they literally are like, this is IBS. We don't have a cure. And I'm like, you go there literally <clears throat> hoping that maybe they'll find cancer. Cause you'll at least have some semblance of an answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things you said on your about page is that your body has answers that your mind is searching for. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you expand on that and explain to me how we find those answers? Sure. I love expanding on that. Um, I also, I, I also was in lots of doctor's offices looking for the answers to IBS. So I hear it. It's like, there's, it's just kind of like, uh, well, I don't know, <laughs> take, take some medicine, I guess, and see if that works. Um, yeah, and the medicine is crazy because the very thing it's supposed to cure are often the side effects. Totally, exactly. But I'm, I want to go back to because, so surfing was what, is what, uh, helped that out for you. 
oh, it, it did wonders. I mean, that's why I got so addicted to it. Right. Okay. And what was it about surfing that got you that, that did that for you? Oh, my, well, one, I think it forced you to be present. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I still remember to this day, like I got out of the water and I was like, wow, I'm like, I feel a lightness that I haven't felt, you know, in 10 years ever since I had IBS. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God, like, maybe this is the cure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I think in that, like even in just that little brief um, story about how, about how you found some ease and some, uh, and really like, you know, a way to heal yourself, um, mm-hmm. is, is an, an example of what I mean when I say that the body has the answers that the mind is searching for. So we, the way that, um, that the sort of dumb, I call it domination society, uh, culture, meaning like the culture of white supremacy, the culture of extractive capitalism, the culture of, you know, domination and control and hierarchy. Um, it really requires isolation from each other and from the natural world and from our bodies. Um, and, you know, and there's a lot, there's many ways that, that we could go into that. But one really clear way is like, you know, for you, for, for the, for the norm to be that someone sits in a, at a desk for eight hours um, you know, now people are starting to say how, you know, sitting is a new smoking, you know, like it's just, it's so it's, it's, it's detrimental to our health. Right. And, um, I work with middle schoolers, uh, and so, you know, trying to, to, to navigate what it means to, to teach them that, yeah, you're going to have to learn how to sit in a room together, but also this is really ridiculous that we're asking you to sit in a room for like, you know, seven hours of the day. Um, it requires this sort of uh, isolation from our actual physical selves, right? Like even just, you know, like limiting biological needs. Like, you know, you can only drink water at this specific time. You can only go to the bathroom at this specific time. It creates this sort of isolation. Then you have the, the domination mentality of like, this is, I need to, I need to dominate my body. Like if my body's sick, I'm going to fix it. Um, the natural world is going to be dominated. Like weeds get pulled out and everything gets like paved and flattened. And then we dominate other people, right? Like that's how a lot of business is, is sort of positioned. Is that like, you know, you gotta, you're going to dominate your industry. And as a result, it just, it, it makes this sort of like the body's just this sort of flesh vehicle that I just have to sort of feed and take care of so that it looks good and, you know, like does what I need it to do. Something like surfing, for example, like, you know, surfing, you are in, like, you're in the elements. Like there's just like, there's no way that you can, that you can, (laughs) that you can forget that you are like, that you are really in, in, in the world and also at the mercy of it. Like once you've gotten rolled (laughs) by some waves, it's just like, oh, right. This ocean is like, I am so insignificant here. Right. But then also you get that feeling of like support and integration. It's just like, oh my gosh, right. Like I can, like I'm in this. And so when we start to remember that we are in the world, that we're in this body, that we're in the world, then listening becomes more possible. It's like, then I can actually, then I, 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 to be in a relationship is to listen, right? Like we've, we know that from, from intimate relationships that we've had. It's like, if you're in a relationship with someone, you need to listen to them, to listen to what they say, to listen to what they need, to pay attention to their, to their, 
likes and desires and the things that they don't want, et cetera. That's like, that's a large part of what it means to be in a relationship. And yet we don't do it with ourselves beyond like really superficial stuff. Like, oh yeah, I like the color pink, but like, oh, like I, my body feels good in this position. Like, oh, I'm supposed to eat, like I've been told that I'm supposed to eat these foods, but actually those foods don't make me feel good. Or I've been like eight hours of sleep is the amount of sleep I'm supposed to have. But actually if I, you know, get, let my body sleep in the amount that it wants, sometimes it's going to sleep for five hours and sometimes it's going to sleep for 10. Like the bodies are wildly adaptable and always giving us new information and having, and having a conversation with us that we need to remember how to listen to. So that's one way that I I say that the body has all those answers. (laughs) That's one way. I have a, I have a question about that only because. Uh, so I do, I started doing CrossFit uh, mm-hmm. a couple of months ago and there are days when I, I wake up and I'm like, yeah, there's no fucking way I'm going to CrossFit because <laughs> they post their workouts before you go. <laughs> and so if you make the decision based on that, that's kind of thing. So, you know, I, I completely agree with this in, in numerous ways. But so, for example, I looked at the workout this morning and I was like, that looks hellish. I've been through one of these before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, in those situations, like where do you draw the line between I'm listening to my body or I'm just being fucking lazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's where that's where discernment comes in. That's where, you know, it does become this thing where there's there's layers to learning how to listen. And part of that's why the the work that I do carries in it an under uh, an examination of of social construct and social context and why we would think that um, I'm really fucking lazy if I don't go to CrossFit, right? Like why is it? And what is the story that we're putting onto ourselves about that? Like what's, what's underneath that feeling of like, of, of this is a lazy choice versus uh-huh. what's underneath the feelings of like, no, my body just really doesn't want to do this because I did a big workout yesterday or just whatever, or however it is. Okay. And understanding that you are the only one that's ever going to know what, what your body's actually saying to you in that kind of situation, right? Like yeah. I can have all sorts of stories about, about it. You know, I can, I, depending on, on what I'm going through, I could just be like, no, 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 no. Don't go. Don't go. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, or I could be just like, yeah, you're fucking lazy. <laughs> yeah. So it comes down to you, right? Like so learning how to listen to you. And it's just, cause there are times where it's like, no, the thing to do is to just do it. Right. Like, yeah. It was, I know I've had nights when I'm like, okay, I smoked like three joints last night and I had like three drinks. I'm like, bad idea to go to CrossFit the next day. This is going to be a shit show. Uh, which now people know intimate details about you know, my vices, but that's okay. Uh, so that happens, right? But you see, on the flip side of that, and, and I think especially you know, since you've done yoga, I kind of felt the same way about yoga. Like, uh-huh. here's what my experience was, right? Is that I would go there and I'm like, I hate every minute of this. And then I love how I felt after I got out. So I never regretted going. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting sort of uh, paradox. So, I mean, you know, given that you do yoga, I'm very, very curious. Like, how do you, how do you address that paradox? It's ah, a great question. I mean, I think one thing is to sort of, one thing is to look and see, well, where are we focused on the results, even if the process itself is miserable, you know, like, mm-hmm. and where are we creating a story about our own, about the process that actually might not be the actual experience of the process. So, and this is where, you know, there could be all, like, none of the, all of this stuff could be used as like, you know, fuel to gaslight ourselves or whatever. Um, 
and and there's plenty plenty out there about of people just like you know really rolling over people's very valid uh, resistance to things like yoga, like what I mentioned before, like, you know, if there's, if there's a lot of, if someone's had a lot of physical trauma, um, or emotional trauma, being in a yoga class for all sorts of reasons might not be the right choice. Um, and that might be because the instructor's not, uh, isn't, uh, skilled in helping in dealing with people who've, who've experienced trauma. That might be because, you know, it's just being focusing on your breath is just not the thing to do might be because of injury. There's all sorts of reasons. So one thing is to be like, okay, so go to yoga, hate the process, love how I feel afterwards. Is there something that I can do instead that I love that will make me feel good afterwards? Like for you, it sounds like it's surfing. Sometimes it's like, you know, some people hate running, love yoga. Some people love yoga, hate running. Or did I say the same thing, just in different order? Anyway, (laughs) you understand what I mean. It's like, there's all sorts of different ways. And so, you know, one thing is like, all right, what do I think it says about me that I go to yoga, right? Like, what is it that I am saying to the world when I put my yoga bag over my back and I wear these yoga pants out into the world and I've got like, you know, my green juice, like, what am I saying to the world about who I am and how much is that adding, like, uh, contributing to how I feel at the end of the class, right? Versus like, do I feel the same way about doing yoga when I go out into the middle of nowhere and do it with no one watching me except for maybe some birds and an iguana? Because if I don't, then it's about what I feel like society is thinking about me now that I, now that I go to yoga, especially since yoga is this sort of, you know, it's this virtuous activity, right? Even more so than other sport, than other things. But, you know, we can talk about surfing. Surfing also has this, like, this cool mystique, right? Like, everyone, like, you know, surfers are just, like, automatically cool. So it's, like, what do I feel? Like, what uh, what about surfing is actually the joy and the exhilaration and the power of being in the ocean and in that relationship with the ocean? And what if it is, like, you know, now I'm cool because I'm a surfer? Yeah. So it's, like, there's all these different, and there's so many ways to examine it. And all of that is to say that there is something so incredibly powerful about like, say, you know, you're in bed and it's time and the alarm goes off and it's time to, to get up and go to CrossFit. And it's just like, there's something so incredibly powerful to just pause and be like, do I want to go? And then listen to the answer and be like, why is that the answer? You know, like it's something that sounds so simple. It sounds so like almost just obnoxiously simple. <laughs> but there is this really powerful thing about asking a question and listening to the answer. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about this in the context of, you know, sort of physical body, physical pain. Mm-hmm. And how does this play out in terms of dealing with people in our lives? You know, like mm-hmm. for example, in your intimate relationships and your, your, your business dealings, like, you know, how does this play out there? Yes. Awesome. So this is another way that I feel like the body has, you know, when I say that the body has the answers that the mind is searching for, um, I'm actually just, I'm just finishing up an essay on extractive capitalism and how that those dynamics play out in our, um, in our relationships. And then also what something like what the skin and the mitochondria can, um, can teach us about interdependence and, you know, and liberatory movements. So a lot of what I'm saying is going to be based on the fact that I've just spent, you know, multiple hours working on that essay. Um, so if I am 
in a idea that domination and power is the goal and that, you know, like say you and I are, are, you know, like, like even just this conversation, right. If I approach this conversation being like, I'm going to dominate this podcast interview, I'm going to show, show him and the listeners that like, I really know my stuff. And I'm like, you know, I'm this expert and just like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to just own it. Right. Then that sets it up that I'm coming in with this. It's not a, it's not a really like the true, it's not the true, uh, meaning of conversation which is like con comes from the Latin word with, and then like verse and bear to see. So it's like, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to see with you. I'm actually trying to like show you who I am. The body doesn't do it that way. Like the body knows interdependence just at such an incredible level, even just in the way that, you know, mitochondria are these organelles, these, these very, very small organs within the cells. So the mitochondria creates ATP, which is the energetic currency of the body, essentially. The mit- mitochondria create the energy and then regulate how the energy is spread to with, uh, among the cell itself and then w- shared with other cells. And then now recent studies are showing that mitochondria can actually cross over into other cells. So if a cell is damaged for some reason and needs backup essentially mitochondria will leave one cell and go to the other cell this is an example of how it's like the body understands mutual well-being and that you know if there's if one it there's not there's no such thing as domination it's not like the heart is like sitting above the breathing diaphragm and being like i'm on top of you i dominate you (laughs) it's like this is a these are relationships and the entire body is built on relationships and not relationships that are like on transaction it's not like you know the lungs aren't just like you owe me an inhale <laughs> the, like these this sort of like anthropomorphism of of the body can be a little bit ridiculous but it can also show how ridiculous these imagined concepts like um, like capitalism are because, you know, we can forget that capitalism was an idea and that, you know, it was imagined and now we're living it, but it was, all, it, it started in someone's mind. And so these con these, these, these ideas become really ridiculous when we think of it, just like, you know, a part of the body being just like, you owe me. <laughs> and now I'm going to go in there and like, I'm going to charge you interest or something like that. That's not how the body works. The body works focused on mutual support and well-being what the whole needs, the, the body works to create. And then when something goes awry, you know, say something like cancer, that's the body doing its best to try and, and to try and come back to wellness. It doesn't mean that we're not going to get it wrong sometimes because clearly things go wrong, but it's never about like, you know, I'm out to get you. Right. Versus. So that is a way that I feel like when we get into the body, we can remember that, mutual support and well-being is actually our default. We have to learn these ways of domination and control and and amassing power. Those are learned behaviors. They aren't the default. This is why like, you know, any little kid, as soon as they can start walking, they're instantly going around and trying and like sharing. Right. Mm -hmm. But then also when I being in relationship isn't always the easy, right? Like whatever, like we know this from our intimate relationships. We know this also from our work relationships from, you know, if we have clients, we know this from dealing with clients. We know this, we know this from all our relationships that sometimes conflict happens. 
So if I like, and there's a way to approach conflict from a place of domination and there's a place, a way to approach conflict from like, oh, we're pushing up against each other. So that's another place where the body can show us what it means to, to, to move away from domination. But then also, if I'm really going to be in this with you or with anyone else, then I need to be willing to turn towards the, the challenging moments, like conflict moments. And I need to be willing to turn towards those moments and stay as present as possible through them, partly because like we don't have a lot of time, right? Like the, the world is in a really, it's in a really bad spot. And we have that like times feel urgent because times are urgent. Urgency is also a tool of capitalism. When time is commodified, that makes people feel like there's this sense of urgency that there wouldn't be otherwise, right? But times are also urgent. Like climate scientists are saying we've got max 11 years before we could just reach the point of no return. And some climate scientists are saying we're already there. Like we've already passed the point of no return. Times are urgent. So I don't have, we don't have like the, it's a, it's a, it's a waste to, to sort of avoid the conflict when it comes or, or need, or sort of make more of a drama show than it needs to be. And going into the body and actually accessing that sort of deep support is a way that we can widen time. That's something I love to say is that embodiment widens time, both in the way that our experience of time and also the, the, the sort of width of potential that we can, um, that we now have in front of us. When, when we are in the body, there's all sorts of, uh, reasons why the nervous system will choose to sort of tunnel in and get us from point A to point B as fast as possible. And that's not going to get us to a new place. We need to be wide open to multiple different and never, ha- never before known possibilities to get us through these times that we don't have a roadmap for really. Mm-hmm. So those are all re- ways that the body has the answers that the mind is looking for. <laughs> wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> This has been really, really mind blowing and, and cool. Like, I, I feel like you packed so much into this that I'm going to have to go back to it a couple of times to really get uh, everything you know I can out of it. So, uh, cool. I want to finish with uh, one final question, which I know you've heard me ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Ooh, I love that question. I love how many different answers you've gathered. So, I really, I feel like the thing that makes someone unmistakable is the willingness to be in the messy relationships that, you know, that we have with others, but first and foremost with the messy relationship that we have with ourselves and just to, to be in that and without the story making or sort of like value judgment that we can, that, that are, have, like I said, that are ha- habits that we need to sort of unlearn, but to just be in it and be in it with ourselves, um, is is a really unmistakable way to be. <laughs> well, I think that makes a really fitting end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything that you're up to? Yeah, well, my my website's probably the best spot. Um, AbigailRoseClark.com, and Clark has an E on the end. So AbigailRoseClark.com. Um, I teach, I facilitate online courses. Um, I work with people privately. 
um, people can come here to, uh, to Yalapa to work with me privately, which, you know, like you said, maybe that'll be, maybe you'll do that. <laughs> there's no, there's no, uh, there's no sets here. Like you have to go to a different, a, a close by beach to surf, but there's surfing. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so I would say that my website is the, is the way I do host a free monthly conversation called the embodiment space. Um, and I, it's, sometimes it's just me. Other times it's with other folks. So that all that information is on my website as well. So if people want to be in conversation with me, that's a way that they can do it. Amazing. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.